Since perfected us, so we shall be trained. He is teacher of gods and humans. He is awakened holy. And we go to page number six. Now let us chant a recollection of the Dhamma. The Dhamma is well expanded by the Blessed One. Apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading in words to be experienced individually by the wise. Now let us chant the recollection of the Sangha. They are the Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well. Directly who have practiced insightfully, those who practiced with integrity, that is the purpose, the eight kinds of noble beings. These are the blessed ones, disciples, such ones are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. Um, something that I'd like to bring up this evening, it's, it's, it, it is very simple. I want to look and talk a little bit about the hindrances, the five hindrances that we do all experience in our practice and how we can relate to them when they come up, when we experience them. And Basically, the five hindrances are really something without any exception. We all, we all fear them. We all, they all come up in our practice, but they also come up in our everyday life. So we can experience them also outside of the retreat setting. It's kind of, it's mental conditions that as a human being, we face up to, we, we meet. So, um, before I go into, I, I like to share with you something, something that came up for me in one of the interviews today. It's just like yesterday evening, I, I mentioned how, what, like I started off with, to say, like, what a wonderful place this is, yeah? One, ca one can't quite 
blame the outside anymore for any misery that comes up. And I like to share with you that I found my misery. <laughs> and you, you probably laugh. I mean, in a way, I'm laughing about it myself because it's the birth of the cows. <laughs> and it's really, it's really nothing but I just see how we are, like, I can just notice how we are prone to look outside to find something that doesn't quite work for us. Yeah? And uh, if it's nothing else, then it's the birth of the cows. And like I have seen myself sitting outside today with having something to, like having a juice, and I was sitting there and I was just saying, okay, Meta, do you, do you really want to go there? Do you really want to do that? And I said, okay, how could I relate to that? And then what came up, like I was playing all kinds of games in my mind. So I was starting to listen to the difference in the birds. Like some are very not so loud and higher than the others. And it was almost like a bell concert. Yeah, And then... Um, like, if I wanted to put it to the extreme, I could say, well, these cows really have made an agreement. Whenever I'm going out there, they all come <laughs> closer, grazing to the retreat center, so I can really enjoy the concert and see what's going on in my mind. And I think for some of you, something similar might be happening. Why I'm mentioning this is... It's really interesting how, and this is actually one of the hindrances, how aversion takes in. Yeah? Something that at another time in my life, when I'm, say, like I'm just coming here to go for a walk yeah, into this area, and I'm just walking along the road, and I hear the cowbells, I can see completely saying to my friends, isn't this lovely? But <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here, like, longing for really quietitude, and there are the birds. And it's, it's really interesting that for making this step, it's almost like you could say the birds don't do anything. They are just there. There's, there's like, the, the birds don't have any intention. They are just ringing. Yeah, it's sound. But how does our mind work with something like that? Yeah? How do we pick up what do we create in our minds with something like that? So I just, I just wanted to bring that in. And so, and I have heard from a few others that they are also struggling with that. And I mean, and I really wonder, like, when are they actually sleeping? <laughs> do, do cows sleep at night or do they continue grazing? So I, I really wonder. But anyway, it's, it's a, it's a good koan and it's a good, how do you say, it's really something good to work with and to look into and to see how the mind 
or not the mind. Like how, with our intentions, we are playing games with ourselves with something like that. Yeah, we could just say, okay, sound, let it happen. Yeah, and sometimes I can, <laughs> but sometimes I can't. And this is just what I have been experiencing here. And I just thought I want to. I want to share that with you. And um, for the retreat center managers here, please don't get me wrong. I think this place is really lovely and wonderful. But it's just like, even with with something like this, yeah, what what we can create, it's just it's just really interesting. So I stop there. <laughs> That's, I thought I'd share that with you all. Mm. So, what I thought of touching into this evening is how we can, um, how we can work with the five hindrances, like how we and give a few examples, like how they could come up in our practice. And I really, while talking this evening, I want to focus mainly on how we experience them in our meditation practice and giving a few um, hints of how we can work with them. Um, just to, for those of you who are newer to the practice, um, the five hindrances in Pali, the word is Nivarana, um, they, they are obstacles, you could say, or hindrances, really hindrances in our practice to develop a gathering of the mind, a concentration of the mind, a calming of the mind. When the hindrances are present, the mind can't really concentrate, can't really go into deeper states of one-pointedness, of of being directed towards the object, towards the meditation object. And in one of the interviews, a few people have mentioned uh, uh, two or three of the hindrances that they had experienced. So I want to, I really want to bring that in because I think there might be more people in the group who, who maybe need to work in regards to that. So... The, the first hindrances is that, that we look at is sense desire. Then the second one is aversion. The third one is sloth and torpor. The fourth one is restlessness and maybe remorse. And the fifth one is doubt. The Buddha brings... Uh, in his teachings, he uses, when he speaks about the hindrances, he uses similes. And one simile that I like very much because I feel it is it's quite vivid and it shows something about the qualities of these different hindrances. So he says, like, when the mind is free from hindrances, it's like a bowl with water and one can look through the surface onto the ground. Yeah? And when one can also see 
one's own image on the surface of the water in the bowl. When there is the hindrance of um, sense desire, the water is colored. Like you could say, with sense desires, I like to use, I don't know actually if the Buddha used that, but I like to use the color pink. <laughs> for me, pink is great for for kind of symbolizing sense desire. <laughs> Maybe because I'm a woman, I don't know. What <laughs> but so just imagine the the bowl, uh, the water in the bowl is really strong pink. So you can't look through, you can't see the ground, and you also don't see the image, your image when you look into it. When we look at aversion, the water in the bowl, uh, in the bowl is boiling. Yeah? It's bubbling and really boiling and fuming. And again, you can't look onto the ground. You can't see your image. With uh, sloth and torpor, the surface of the water is covered with moss. Yeah? It's covered with moss and algae. So no way to see any image or to see through that. Completely covered. Yeah? Then for restlessness, and remorse, he uses the image of the water being whipped. Yeah? So the energy of restlessness is kind of whipping the water up. And so there, there are waves and again one can't see, look deeper, one only sees the, the waves or the, the ripples of the whipping. Then the last one for doubt, he uses the image of the water being murky. For those of you who are not English speakers, uh, like if, if there are some Germans here, like ich würde sagen, das Wasser ist schlammig. Yeah? It's full, heavy, also schwer mit Schlamm. Völlig undurchsichtig. So, I continue in English. The, the, the water is murky. There's no way one can look deeper into it. And again, on the surface, there, there are the bits and pieces of the murkiness swimming on top. So I feel when the Buddha uses the, the images and the simile, that, like what he brings into with that is part of the energy that is underlying or that is part of the hindrance. Yeah? So I want to say a little bit more about um, all the individual ones, but like starting with sensual desire. Sensual desire is um, the trickiness of sensual desire is when we experience it in the practice, it can entice us. Yeah? It's, and it can come up when you are, like say, whether you are arriving at the retreat and you start practicing, 
and it doesn't yet really work quite well. And you, like, your mind brings up images or, um, how do you say, memories of situations that are much more interesting than, say, the breath. (laughs) (laughs) That are much more enticing or that are much more interesting like like there is like with sensual desire what comes always along is a certain kind of promise yeah like if i have that then i'm really okay yeah and sometimes it can go so far that we say like even if I can only have this, I don't need anything else afterwards, just this, and then I'm happy for the rest of my life. Okay, we speak again how long that lasts <laughs> when, when you get that. It's, it's really interesting because sensual desires are, they are promising us something that they will never be able to hold yeah and I'm sure you like say I mean I could pick just anything right now when I speak about sensual desire it's like desire for food is it is desire for any material goods house car or like say interesting work it's also desire for a really fantastic relationship and it can like that like if it's sexual desire it can go wherever especially when you are on retreat the mind can just really carry you away and but all of them they have the same pattern and when we, keep, when we can see that, when we can look through that, we, we can actually see that the base of sensual desire is actually impermanence. Yeah? It's almost like embedded in sensual desire is also impermanence. So when we are looking at sensual desire and we look from the aspect of how long will that last what is my experience from situations before yeah it's like there comes up an image there comes up a dream a vision an idea and it can really kind of carry us away and today in the interview I, I said like the sensual desire it's almost like if I would describe the energy it's kind of reaching out there want that one more for me yeah so that is that is kind of the energetic movement of sensual desire give it all to me never enough Evermore, <laughs> if you buy into sensual desire, it's a bottomless pit. Yeah, never enough. Even maybe even if it lasts for a little while, soon or later, something else comes up. Like 
when I say if it lasts, say your desire is fulfilled. That's what I mean. And so really ask yourself, look into your former experiences. How long did they actually last? Yeah? How long did the like say the satisfaction of having a new car, of having, um, I don't want to go, this is a bit, <laughs> don't want to go too much into relationships, but <laughs> because they have their own value and I don't want to dismiss that. But if it is really based on short-term pleasure, I would say it's really questionable. And just ask yourself, how long is that really satisfying? I think this covers pretty much the object. So, what we, when we, when we look at, at sensual desire, when it comes up in our practice, one thing that I really recommend is look like when when you like experience an image, when you experience um, like a desire coming up, look at what is actually underneath there. Like today to the person I asked, I asked the person, are you maybe bored? <laughs> yeah, so often in our practice, Sensual desire comes in because we don't apply really the right energy or to the practice. Like we are, we are not really making the practice interesting. Yeah. So in order, like say, when you are working with the breath and you have like your program. Um, like you always do it like this and this and this and this. After the after a while, that can get really boring, and can and can come to the point where you where you find it pretty pointless. It's like automatic pilot working. Yeah, that's not what we want to do in our practice. And if you notice, for example, that at the moment your mind is all over the place with longings for this and that then maybe the breath isn't the right object. And to look into what other objects would there be available, like what, say for example, if I'm um, keeping the, the mind, if I'm keeping yeah, the, the mind busy and engaged, for example, doing body scanning or, say, doing meta practice, then actually the mind has to be kind of, has to be on the go. It can't just go here and there. It is kind of, it is more directed, it is more engaged in the whole process. I hope I make sense here because it is interesting and it's important to see that at certain times because where we are energetically, where we are in our experiences, certain objects help us and help us to focus the mind and other objects are not quite doing the work at that moment. Yeah. So 
Maybe when you notice that the, you, you can't quite stay, you can't quite focus on the object to really look into what is happening here. Like, is there boredom? Can I, can I bring up more energy? And sometimes it, like, small things can help. Like, the main um, suggestion for working with sense desires during the meditation practice is really looking at the impermanence, as the, at the fleetingness of our experiences, and also to look into, um, like, what, like, what is missing here? What is there maybe something present that I don't quite want to relate to? Yeah, is there something underneath the surface that needs attention and I cover it up with all, like I distract myself with certain sense desires? But you have to find out for yourself and in your practice use the tools that are possible to use. So working with impermanence, looking if the object is really the right one, and also looking into is there something uh, like under the surface, deeper in my experience that I kind of want to cover over, that I want to distract myself from, from this. It can be a painful experience. It can be something, <laughs> like one thing can be that maybe it is that you need to pay a bill and you don't want to think about it. Yeah. So then what is necessary is pay the bill, then sit down and meditate and, <laughs> and continue with the practice. But these kind of things, they, they can really come in and disturb. And they bring up, they can bring up these images, and they can bring up these hindrances. So, the second hindrance that uh, I want to look at with you is the aversion. So, when the Buddha speaks about the boiling water, extreme aversion, when you experience it you feel like something is boiling in you. <laughs> you feel like there is a volcano who could unleash, who could kind of, how do you say, like who could just empty itself sometime soon. That's extreme. Yeah? But what we are looking at is the mind that is dissatisfied. Yeah, we are looking at the mind that does not want to relate to what is coming up. Like yesterday evening I talked about afflictive um, experience, afflictive emotions, and <clears throat> they, are one, they are a part of aversion. Um, when we, like the main antidote to aversion that you find in all the Buddhist scriptures mentioned 
is the practice of loving kindness. Yeah. Um, I, but I think what is really important with aversion, it, the first step is really bringing mindfulness in and recognizing in what way is aversion manifesting right now. Yeah. How how does it like how does it distract us? What kind of images come up with it in the mind? Very important. Then, like, if aversion is related to a person outside of us, doesn't always need to be a person. Can also be a situation outside. <laughs> like, say the cowbells. <laughs> That's one form of it. Um, so we are like we look at what is the first step to do here. Sometimes it works, but most often this is actually the second step. Is sometimes it works to bring meta towards the object, compassion, meta, kindness towards the object that is disturbing us or that is causing affliction for us. But I think most of the time, the first step we have to do is to connect with our internal experience, to really bring metta, to bring compassion, to bring empathy towards ourselves in that situation. Because it as you probably know, it is very difficult to have kindness towards something or somebody who is annoying you. <laughs> I, I mean, I find that. <laughs> so my, the first step I need to do is really looking in, okay, what is actually happening here right now? What, what actually comes up? What is triggered? Like what... Um, what is causing the conflict? And I would, I would, I don't want to say 100%, let's say 99%. It's actually not out there, but it's in here. Yeah? And that's why the step in here is very important. Is it's, it's, necessary in order to resolve that what brings up the boiling. Yeah? So look what actually, like I'm keeping with the image, I would actually say look at what is the fire that makes the water boil. Yeah? So what is the energy that actually brings up the, vo the boiling of the water, that brings up the disturbance, that brings up the not wanting to deal with that. Yeah, that, is, that is another part of aversion. Like energetically, we kind of don't want to deal with it. We want to suppress it. We want to push it away. It's something like quite understandable. It's quite something unpleasant. Yeah, it's not nice to experience aversion. And so we, we have to find ways of actually connecting 
internally with what brings this experience up? What is the source of this experience? I mean, one of the sources could again be boredom. <laughs> and, and so I don't feel the boredom so much, so I create some misery outside or internally for myself. I have to really consider that with the cowbells. <laughs> Maybe that has something to do with that. But, but anyway, um, so when we, <clears throat> when we experience aversion, it feels also like the, it's like aversion is such an unpleasant experience. If it is strong, it can almost like feel like the body is sick or the mind is sick and there is this feeling of that can go along with that is it's like a feeling of unwellness in the body and it can we can really physically feel that physically experience that and sometimes like um, when people have questions around that like they come and say, I don't quite know what's happening, but I have these crumbs or I have these contractions in the body. Often that can actually be related to aversion. We are suppressing it. We are not really acknowledging it. And looking into how it manifests in the body, it's like looking into what area actually resonating towards this experience or with this experience. Okay, then the next one is loss and torpor. And <laughs> I know, I, I know, I can say that, I know we all experience that. And sometimes it comes up not at all in one retreat because we feel we have a lot of energy and the practice works really well. And at other retreat times, it can come back again and again and again and we find ourselves nodding, nodding away. Yeah. So when we experience loss and torpor, one, there are a few very simple things that we can do. And I'm sure many of you know this. It's kind of, to start with, I would say, like, maybe imagining or bringing up the image of light inside ourselves, in our mind. If you can do that, develop a bright light in your mind. Another method is to... um, Open your eyes and to let the gaze go up. Like when I say up, what I mean is when I, when I sit here and I, I would do that, I would look at where the ceiling and the wall meet over there. When we do that for a while, the energy rises up in the body. Another very important thing is look at your posture. Often when we are nodding, we are, we are kind of leaning forward. The spine isn't straight anymore. The energy can't really flow freely through the body. And it's almost like it's stopped, like 
because of the curve of the spine. Mm. Another aspect of loss and torpor, I would say, is um, what you can do is using the breath by energizing the body. But that would only work if it hasn't yet completely overtaken you. So you look at um, the in-breath, like with the inhalation, you bring slightly more energy into the body. So you emphasize the inhalation, but not incredibly strongly. It's a light touch. It's a light change. Then another antidote would be, and I do recommend that, and I'm using that myself, if you find yourself really being completely caught by sloth and torpor, like the Buddha uses another image with sloth and torpor where he says, like, you are in a prison cell and you can't get out. And I feel like sloth and torpor, when it is, and it has already fully developed. It, it feels like you are, you are caught by it. You are cornered by it. And one of the things with loss and torpor is it actually can feel quite pleasant. It's kind of the nice cotton wool nest <laughs> where we are nestling in and where we, where we, where we feel like, hmm, quite nice. Yeah. But we don't, we forget that there is no clarity whatsoever in the mind with that. So what I suggest then to people is if it's really if it really has caught you, stand up. Yeah? Go and stand for a while. I mean not go, stand for a while mm-hmm. <laughs> and and just sometimes just a few minutes, five, ten minutes can change the energy completely around. Because by doing standing meditation, by standing up, the energy can flow freely through the body. And you might have noticed this morning when we were doing the standing meditation that the energy can actually get quite strong. And like I was one of the first people sitting down because I felt like there was suddenly so much energy in the body that I felt... Okay, enough. <laughs> now I, I, I sit down with this. Yeah. So when you experience the dullness, the hev- like the dullness of the mind, the heaviness of the body, and it's strong, get up, stand for a while, allow the energy to change, to flow freely, and then if you sit down again, your experience will be different. Uh, it does it does help, and I'm talking from experiences like in the monasteries we especially in the first i think my first ten years in the monasteries, we had these all night sittings, yeah we started in the evening at half past seven, and we ended at was it three or four four yeah we ended at four o'clock, and I'm a morning person, so <laughs> After midnight, you can forget <laughs> about me. So I was spending most of the time doing walking meditation outside. If it was raining, I was somewhere standing in the hall, or I was sitting on my mat and just nodding away. Yeah. So 
for some people it's a it's a different experience but this was where i experienced the the dullness and the heaviness of sloth and torpor so then again with sloth and torpor if you experience it really for like say you're on a retreat like this one and you experience it almost in every sitting again and again like your mind is just soothing off yeah i would say there is something that needs to be recognized there's something there that you might not want to acknowledge that you might not want to face that you might not want to see yeah so look a little bit under the surface and see maybe is there um issue in my life that needs attention is there something that is bothering me is there something that mm, causes maybe stress something like that yeah usually if you continuously experience sloth and torpor on a retreat there's something that you that is waiting for you to be to discover yeah it's it's kind of sitting there needing the attention needing um the turning towards and we can distract ourselves very well with sloth and torpor and i do have experienced that myself then the next hindrance is restlessness restlessness comes in like the image is the whipping of the water or the water getting whipped um restlessness can be if it's strong can be a very physical experience and i remember times where i felt like i can't sit still any longer because every cell in my body wants to move <laughs> it doesn't want to sit quiet right now and it's as if there is something really almost like you could say like as if the skin is not wide enough to keep all the energy that is going on yeah that's going on internally so it feels almost like i don't know how to hold i don't know how to hold inside this kind of energy in milder forms restlessness uh, does manifest in a way that again like the mind hops from here to there you could say like in asia they u- they used the image of uh, a monkey here in europe i like to use the image of a squirrel yeah hopping around never really staying for a long time in one place hop 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 yeah and um so when we when we see that the mind is engaged in that way it will be impossible really to focus and to stay with the object it's it's not possible because you will see that it goes off here it goes off there so we have to find 
some means that help us to calm the mind down. As you know, body and mind are not separate. If the body is calm, the mind is calm as well. So when we are doing the sitting meditation and we experience a lot of restlessness, I really recommend doing long, deep breaths for quite a period of time until you notice, okay, here is going to start a change. Um, The emphasis with restlessness is really in the out-breath and the relaxation, the letting go. If you notice the like the restlessness being quite strong, like you can even, I wouldn't say here in the retreat, but at home when you experience that, really allow yourself to sigh for a few times. Yeah, like really like, and long, and just let the energy flow out. Um, Another way of, Like another antidote to restlessness would be doing walking meditation. I know Ajahn Suchito, when he explained the walking meditation, was really using the image of walking quite slowly. That can be one way of uh, kind of counteracting the restlessness by consciously walking very, very slow. When we do that, the body gets calmed. With the body being calm, the mind becomes calm too. So there is, and I'm using that myself, if I feel very restless, if I feel like I can't really be for a longer period of time with anything, when I do this really slow walking and I'm doing it for quite a period of time, I notice how the activity of the mind calms down. Yeah? It gets slower. The thought processes are not so fast anymore. There, there is a, how do you say, it's almost like you are putting the foot on the brake and the car is starting to slow down. So if that does not work, maybe just some really active walking, strong walking, and really kind of while you're walking, just almost like stomping the energy out. So allowing the energy to flow out with the walking. That can be necessary if we, like say, if the restlessness is like I explained it in the beginning, like when you feel like the the body is brimming brimming with energy and you really don't know how to hold it inside then if you are actually allowing the body to move it out. And it's not so much that we, how do you say, that we control that. It's more allowing the body to move 
or to get moved by that energy. I hope that makes sense. And I, I find that actually quite helpful. Then the fifth hindrance is doubt. And in a way, it is one of the most difficult ones because it's quite tricky. Doubt can appear like in the, I would almost like say in the disguise of the tyrant. Like doubt is like when the energy of doubt is present, when, when the hindrance is really there, we, we doubt what we are doing in our practice, we are questioning if this really works for us, we, are, we have lost the ground of trust, we have lost the ground of confidence, of like you could also say like conviction, we know what we are doing here, like that feeling, we know what we are doing here, we, we, we work with whatever comes up. Doubt comes in like, like you could also say like the inner critic uh, commenting on our experiences and undermining us in what we are doing right now. It's almost like it pulls away the carpet underneath our feet. And if like if you experience doubt outside of the meditation time, like say in your everyday life, it can manifest in ways that you actually are unable to make any decision. Like whenever you are coming to the point that, okay, yeah, now I think I'm going to do this and doubt comes in, then you, don't, you are not sure anymore. So when doubt is present, what is very important is to turn, our, to turn the awareness fully towards doubt. This is doubt. This is how doubt manifests. Yeah? Like, and know that if you believe in the voices of doubt, if you follow them, it will kind of, how do you say, it will mess up your life or it will mess up your practice because it will, like it has the energy of never staying anywhere long enough so that you actually can follow up with any decision or with any, like in your meditation practice, like say you are starting with doing metta practice and you notice that not immediately there comes up this nice kind of feeling of well-being that we can develop in the practice of metta, um, of loving kindness. And so the doubting mind comes in and says, ah, oh, today it's not really a day for metta practice. Why don't you try this or why don't you try that? Yeah. So sometimes when we know that this is how doubt comes in. This is how doubt is afflicting us. It is good just to say, okay, I hear what you are saying, but right now I'm just staying with this. Even 
if, like say, let's stay with the meta practice, even if I can't develop a mind of goodwill, of um, well-being for myself or for others, at least I can come to the point where I, accept, where I can say, okay, I accept that this is what is happening right now. There is the influence of doubt. This is how it is manifesting in the mind. But still, basically, I do wish myself well. And like depends how you're working. Um, and it is important to see that without we can't, it doesn't quite work with trying to push it away. In a way, with doubt, what we really have to develop is a sense of patience. It's a sense of acceptance. But it doesn't mean that we believe in the voices that doubt comes up with. Yeah? It doesn't mean like th- that we believe what the inner critic is telling us. Yeah? And we can even, like, you could work with saying, I know you, Mara. <laughs> I, can, I, I have heard you before. I, I've met you before. Okay, nice to meet you, friend. But I don't believe what you say. Yeah? So, and it doesn't mean that that will immediately work. But we can come from a point where we understand this is actually what is unfolding right now. I'm not sure. I, I don't quite know what is right or wrong. But can I just stay at this point of not knowing? Can I say, good enough, this is not knowing? Yeah? When we can, how do you say, when we can relate really with, from, with this, from the inner point of acceptance, from almost like, I don't want to say embracing, but really holding this. This is my experience right now. This is what is happening right now. And just be with it, stay with it. Also this will change. So these are roughly and very shortly the hindrances. And so if you experience anything like this in your practice, see if you can work with the antidotes. See if you can bring them in actively. And like with all of them, the first step really is to recognize the mind isn't focused, the mind isn't clear. I'm not able to really work with the object that I have chosen. So what is it that is in the way? What? So you have to identify which hindrance is present. And then when you know what it is, you can apply the antidotes. You can pl- apply the tools that you are working with. 